Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our scripture this morning comes from Luke 8, 40 through 56. So if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, friends. If you're visiting with us, uh, my name is Jonathan, one of the teaching pastors here. We're so glad you're here with us. Well, wow, that is a powerful story. It's a well-known story. It's really two stories that have been combined together. And and part of the reason that story is so famous is because this is uh, something that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three first gospels, this story is repeated in the exact same way, meaning that these two stories are put together in what's often called a sandwich, where one story starts and then the second story begins and then the, the first story ends. And the technical term for this is intercalation, but since it's in Greek, I like to think of it like a euro, right? So you've got the, the first story and, the, and then the middle story in between. And so these stories are, are, this combined story is really famous because it's in all three of the Gospels. In Luke, which we're preaching through right now, it really comes in the sequence of a bunch of stories we've seen starting back in chapter 7, where Jesus is showing his power in doing good. He heals um, the centurion servant from afar back in in chapter 7. He raises a widow's son. He shows his authority over sin and that he forgives someone's sin. He shows his authority over nature and that he calms a storm. He Last week, if you were here, and if you look back in just before this in chapter 8, he shows his authority over the spiritual realm and, and 
exercising these demons from this man. And now here to conclude this series of, of pictures of, of who Jesus is and power and authority, we see this double story. And I do think it's, there's something more going on in this sandwich, in this Euro story, by God combining them together, that is more than just if we heard these stories separately. And if you think about it, maybe you've heard these stories before, maybe you haven't, but there are a lot of parallels between these two stories. It's not just that they're two separate stories have been mashed up. These stories intentionally parallel each other. In fact, it could really be called the tale of two daughters. We know that the the first story is about a, a, a man, Jairus, and his daughter who's dying. And then in the, the second woman we meet here, Jesus calls daughter at this crucial moment in the story we'll see. And these stories are also paralleled in that these two daughters are both, according to Jewish customs and what the Old Testament teaches, both unclean in the sense of one from disease of a bleeding and then when the girl dies that is also a ritual kind of uncleanness and we'll come back to what that means but it's especially interesting to notice the connection of 12 here did you see that that this 12 year old girl and this woman who has been suffering from this disease this bleeding disease for 12 years that means that the year that this girl was born in the first story was the year that this woman began to experience this devastating disease. And it's like there were these invisible strings tying them together, and now their lives, we assume they don't know each other, their lives intersect at this point in the day in which they both meet Jesus and are completely transformed. And so the traditional understanding is that a a girl becomes a woman at age 12, And so it's like we have two daughters and two women whose lives are built together. And I think by seeing them as together and by looking at these stories that are interwoven, I think God has something very profound to say to us today. And so we're going to see that the same sequence of what happens in both of their stories is how the story unfolds. And that sequence of these daughters I would describe as desperation, followed by dread, and followed by deliverance. And that's the title you may have seen in your bulletin. So if you have a Bible, or you can pull it up somehow, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. I just want to go back to this story, slow down a little bit, pay attention to what's going on, and and follow through what happens here so that we can see what God has for us. Again, there should be a a Bible in the rack in front of you, or you just pull it up on your phone, just Google Luke 8. We'll be using the NIV starting in verse 40, and I'd love for you to follow along with me. We'll put some of the verses on the screen as well. The first stage of our story is desperation. If you look at verse 40, you see that Jesus has returned to the area that he's in now. In the previous story from last week, he had taken this kind of weird field trip with his disciples to this remote area, had encountered this demoniac man, had healed him, and now he's returned to this more populated area and everybody is looking for him. They had seen him, they had heard him teach, they had felt his touch, they'd seen him heal people. They knew something was at work. They knew God was present in Jesus. And so people are longing to be near him. They're coming to him in every way. And so they're crowding. And if you look at verse 41 or 42 in there, it says 40 and 41, it says that the crowd was pressing upon him. But in this pressing crowd, a way is cleared 
because in the midst of all this tumult, a VIP arrives. This man, Jairus, who was the leader of the synagogue, he's a dignified, respected, honorable man, you know, leader among the Jewish people. And he approaches Jesus, we see in verse 41, and do you notice what happens? How does this important man approach Jesus? He falls at Jesus' feet and begins pleading with him. This is, a, this is an expression that Luke uses quite a few times to describe what happens when people meet Jesus. Over 13 times in the book of Luke and in Acts, he shows people falling at Jesus' feet. And this really is an involuntary bodily sign of desperation. To fall at your feet, to lay prostrate, to fall at someone's feet is an involuntary sign of, of your body expressing the deep desperation. And I, I had never experienced this myself, like this involuntary sense until a couple of times within the last decade that I can remember very distinctly. One was a situation I was in with a lot of anxiety and some injustice happening to me. And I, I just, I, there more than once, I remember just literally just falling down out of anxiety and being prostrated on the ground. I had never experienced anything like that. I could not not do it. And then just within the last year, if you know, with my wife's brain tumor and surgery about 18 hours or so after the operation, she was in a very dark place and extreme pain and, and we thought the end had come and I could not not fall down, you know, next to her bed. And this, this is something I'd never experienced. Some of you have, some of you have not but it is a universal human experience that shows that we're in a desperate place. And why is Jairus so desperate? Because his daughter, his only daughter, his precious 12-year-old is dying. She's not just sick. She's not, he's not just experiencing the kind of anxiety that all parents do many times with our children about various things. She is dying. And so he is in incredible despair. And if you just look at those first couple of verses, in verses 41 and 42, so much anguish, so much pain, so much fear is just jammed in there that it's easy to kind of just read through them and, and not feel what this man is going through. And so Jesus, who we constantly see throughout the Bible, is full of compassion. He says, yes, I'll go with you. And he begins to go with Jairus to his house. And the end of verse 40, 42 again says the crowds is crushing him as this is happening. Just everybody wants to be near him. And here's what happens in verse 43. Look there with me. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Like also Mark, who also tells us this story, adds this detail for us that she had had such a chronic condition and she had spent 12 years trying to get doctors to help her and she had spent all the money she had and her situation had not gotten better. It actually had only gotten worse. So in the case of Jairus, we see someone who we might say is in this like acute moment of desperation. Something's come upon him and his family. For this woman, we could call this like a chronic desperation. It's just been going on day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, 12 years. And for her, for various reasons from Leviticus 15 and other places, 
she again is in this category, whatever her medical condition was, we don't know exactly, but she's in this category of what would be called ritually unclean, meaning that she is uh, not, it doesn't mean she's sinful, it doesn't mean she's done something wrong, it means that because of what's happening in her body, there is this category of, of separation that is required for a time, but in her case, it has not ended. It has gone on and on and on. This means that anything she drank from, anything she touched, anyone she bumped into had the potential of being unclean. It means she couldn't worship at the temple. It means at the time she probably couldn't even go into Jerusalem. And what that all means is that she is deeply isolated. She's completely on her own. So not only is she now poor, but she is truly an outcast. And if you can just try to imagine yourself, no one touch you for 12 years, no one be near to you, no one invites you into their home for 12 years, you're cut off from the community. And now, in this moment, she sees her chance. Because you see, the crowd is so big and everyone's jostling to be near her, to be near Jesus, and there's just a crowd pressing. Nobody even knows what's going on. The disciples are trying to manage everything, and she sees her chance. This is her chance, this woman who's been excluded, to actually try to get near enough to Jesus, and nobody will notice her. Nobody will recognize her. So I can imagine she probably put her scarf over her head and her robes, and she is thinking, if I can just get close enough, Nobody will see me, and all I have to do is just touch near him. I'm not going to face him, and I'm not going to, um, nobody's going to recognize me. If I could just touch the hem of his robe, I believe, I've seen what he's done. I believe God is at work in him. If I could just touch him, I know I'll be healed. And so she does, and, and she's hoping not to be noticed, and she somehow gets there, and she touches the, the edge of his garments, and instantly, the story says, she was healed. She knew it in her body. It'd be like if you had like a shoulder that was displaced, and it's hurting, and then all of a sudden it pops back in, and you just know it, or... Maybe I've experienced this, you probably have too, more on the psychological side where there's some burden weighing you down and you maybe didn't even fully realize what it all felt like unless, until it was taken away and they're like, oh, that was really heavy. And so whatever it was, she felt in her body that she had been healed. And instantly, and I can imagine she probably could hardly believe it. I mean, she probably had this joy and also this like, is this really real? And can I really hope in this, in this moment? Now, the story could have ended there. We have lots of stories of Jesus encountering people, receiving healing from him, and, and going on with their lives. But it doesn't end there, as we'll see. And in fact, also with Jairus and his sick daughter, Jesus healed people from afar like he did back in chapter 7. We could have just read in this story that Jesus, is, Jesus came to Jairus' house and he healed the daughter but there's another step. There's something unexpected in these stories that happens. It's not just a story of despair and faith and then deliverance. There's another step, and it's a step that we can call dread. Look at it there with me again. For the people in these stories, for Jairus and his daughter and for this woman, their desperation really does turn to dread. Their stories go from bad to worse, with the threat of loss becoming real now. Because you see, this woman, she's standing there, she's shocked, she can hardly believe that she's actually been healed. She's probably, again, has this mixture of joy and, and afraid to hope that it's real. And then look at verse 45 of what happens. Who touched me? Jesus asked. 
When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing around you. But you said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Now, when I first started thinking about this text more deeply this week, I thought, this is kind of weird. This is weird for a couple of reasons. The first reason is what Peter's response is. Of course, everybody is bumping into Jesus and everybody is, you know, you know, you know hitting his garments and touching him in all these ways. And Peter's response is what we would respond as well. Like, what do you mean who touched you? A million people just touched you. But Jesus knows there's something else going on. He knows something else has happened. Even as this woman felt that in her body, something had changed, he knew that. And that leads to the second reason why this text is weird. It's, it's like, this is the only miracle we have like this where somebody touches, you know, Jesus' garment and it was healed. It almost, I mean, it seems like something out of like a D&D staff of healing or something, if you know what that is, or a magic crystal or something. It just feels very magical. Like, because we don't, we don't see this kind of thing happen but we'll see in a moment that that's not what's happening, that this is very personal. This is a healing from faith, we'll see. And that's why Jesus knows this. I mean, after all, a bunch of other people were you know, bumping into him and didn't receive this. So there's something else going on here than just the touch of Jesus' garments. And that's what Jesus knows. But for this woman, then, do you see, her desperate situation has now actually gotten worse. Because, you see, she, this social outcast who's not supposed to be around all these other people, bumping into them as well, she had hoped to be anonymous. She actually pulled it off. She thought she now she got this healing, she could just slip away and no one would ever know. But now Jesus has stopped the whole crowd and has basically made a scene here and said, who touched me? And so her momentary joy has really turned to dread. This woman who whose life the last 12 years has been shame and exclusion and loneliness, being lesser. She has touched Jesus, potentially making him unclean. She's done this kind of deceptively, right? Desperation does make us do desperate things, and now she knows she is in trouble because she has put herself into conflict with this all-powerful man of God. So look at what happens in verse 47. So then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. So just like Jairus had fallen at Jesus' feet, now she does as well, though not again just in desperation, but really in dread. I mean, she realizes she can't escape this. And to her credit, she you know, realizes all I can do is be honest and kind of cast myself at his feet. And... That's a good choice, but she has no idea what's going to happen. In fact, I think she probably is quite fearful in this moment. And so before we look at what Jesus says, skip down to verse 49. This is where our other story comes in. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and he said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. So even as this bleeding woman's story went from desperation to a moment of joy, but then really to dread, Jairus's story also goes from desperation to dread. He sees this messenger come, 
and he hears these cold words. And, you know, if you imagine, if you can try to imagine Jairus' situation here. So he's desperate. He's asked Jesus to come. Jesus said he'd come. He's got to be deeply anxious and even annoyed that this crowd is preventing Jesus from moving very quickly. All these people are with her. And and he's just saying, Lord, we've got to get to my daughter. She's dying. And now he stops. And this woman comes forward who's an outcast and is there at his knees. And all Jairus can think, I'm sure, is we do not have time for this. My daughter is dying. Come on, Lord, we have got to get there. And then in the midst of that, that despairing moment, then to hear those cold words, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Reminds me of maybe similarly to what Mary and Martha felt in John chapter 11 when their brother died and Jesus had not made it there in time. And so both of our stories go not the way we think they're going to at first. They go from this horrible situation to an even worse one. And these two daughters, though, are about to experience something else. And this is where the third move, deliverance, occurs. Let's pick back up with the bleeding woman. What does Jesus say to her as she's there? Probably, rightly, in her mind, afraid that maybe Jesus is going to take back this healing that maybe he's going to shame her in front of everyone. He's going to call her out. Maybe, maybe best case scenario, he's going to cross his arms and say, okay, you can have this healing this time, but what you did was wrong. What's he going to say? We'll look at verse 48. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Rather than scolding her, rather than withdrawing his power, reluctantly letting her go, he speaks these words that Jesus doesn't speak to anyone else in the Gospels. Daughter, this affectionate term, go in peace. And this also shows us again that this is not, again, this is not a magical healing. Jesus is calling out her faith. He wants her to see and he wants everyone to see that this was not a magical amulet that did this. She believed in him, and he also wants to honor that and bless her and give her peace. And you notice then, that's paralleled with what happens immediately in verse 50, when Jairus hears that his daughter is dead, he says, do not be afraid, believe or have faith, and she will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. If you let your eyes rest down to the next five or six verses, we'll see that Jesus goes to Jairus' house, and the daughter is dead, and everyone knows that. He doesn't let the crowd see this all. He only takes with him Peter, James, and John, and the, the child's parents. They go into the room where this young woman is. On the way, Jesus says, why are you wailing? She's not dead, she's asleep. And they are, you know, they know that he's foolish, and this makes no sense, and they even mock him, it says. And why would Jesus say that? Well, sleep is a metaphor for death. Jesus often means more than what, he, what it initially seems like he means. But I think what's really going on here, if you look at the very last verse, verse 56, when he tells them not to tell anyone what happened, the point is Jesus is not trying to, to whip up this already pressing crowd. He's not trying to gain popularity. He's not trying to start a movement. He is out of compassion 
genuine and full compassion, bringing healing and, and restoration of life to this, this family and to this daughter. But he's not, he, if he wanted to like just be, become popular and get a big crowd, he would have said, bring the deathbed out here and do it in front of everybody. That's not what he's interested in doing because he has come to do to heal people for sure, but he's come to do more, he realizes, to, to teach and preach about what the kingdom is, to invite people into it, and ultimately to die on a cross himself and rise from the dead so that he can inaugurate this new relationship between God and humanity. So he's not trying to do this for popularity. He's trying to do this out of love. And so he, he, he wants to keep this on the down low, but still bless this family. And so he does. And so these people's desperation that turns to dread really does turn to deliverance for these two daughters. And what I want to do is think with you, what does this mean? And as I meditated on this story this week, I thought, you know, in some ways it, it would be enough just to be in awe of this, just to see Jesus' power. The same Jesus who did these is still alive today and present for us. And this is awesome, truly. And to see that God himself is the same one who is still powerful and compassionate and intentional and loving and active in our lives, inviting people to believe him. That is a wonderful thing to take away from this. But I, but I also want to draw out just two sentences. I want to draw out, and from drawing those out, I want to see how God is drawing us into himself. So I want to draw out two sentences. Here's the first one. That God wants us, I think from these stories, to gain a fuller picture of who Jesus is and what he does for people, that is for us. He wants us to see a fuller picture. And what I mean is this, when we think about Christianity and we think about Jesus, we rightly talk a lot about him dying on the cross and rising from the dead to forgive our sins. And that's absolutely right. That's non-negotiable. We need that. And we think of that primarily in terms of legal. So we have broken God's law and we stand condemned and therefore we can have forgiveness of sins. And that's wonderful, that's good, we need that absolutely. However, or and, what we don't realize is that that's not all that the gospel is, and that's not all that Jesus is, that's not all that Jesus does, and it's stories like this and many, many others that help us see that while forgiveness of sins is essential to the gospel, it's not actually the entirety of what Jesus is about. A story like this and many others show us that Jesus' work in the world and the work for us also involves cleansing us from being unclean before God and others. It involves removal of shame, this powerful emotional state as well as experience we have in culture where we are shamed. Jesus is also, his work is to conquer death. Not just to say, you're all gonna die, but you can be forgiveness. He actually conquers death. We see a picture of this and he himself will and we will as well eventually. We also see that the gospel involves deliverance from desperate situations, physical and psychological, and it also involves restoration to a community. Did you notice that? That in both of these daughters' cases, Jesus' work really ends up in them being restored to the community of people, just like it happened with the demoniac in the previous story as well. And I, I like how Tom Wright describes this. He says, Christianity is not just this like spiritual reality, which it is, it's not just about internal soul issues of breaking God's law, but it's about God being present in our real life and our suffering. He says, Jesus gets his hands dirty with the problems of the world and he welcomes our trembling touch and responds with that central biblical 
command, do not be afraid. This story shows us that Jesus is, yes, he's going to go on to die for our sins, but he is deeply involved in removing shame, removing, removing death, removing uncleanness, and restoring us to community. I said something before about this uncleanness idea. I know we don't really have a direct analogy to this. It's kind of weird because it's not just like a biological germ, but it's also not sin. There's this category that we struggle with to understand of kind of uncleanness. Whatever exactly it is from Leviticus, Jesus has reversed that. Did you notice that in both cases, he touches the daughter, right? And instead of, instead of uncleanness being transferred to him like a contagion, it's reversed, that they become clean. And this is the power of Jesus even today. And I love that idea of, of them being restored to community. Both of them are restored, and that is also still true today. Some of you here, or maybe some of you watching online, you feel isolated because of shame, regret, embarrassment. Maybe on the outside, you look like you've all together, all together, but you really feel isolated. Jesus came not only to forgive your sins, but to restore you to himself and to restore you to others. Whether your sins are, and failures are public, whether they're private, whether they're relational, whether they're financial, whether they're personal, your shame and your uncleanness can actually be removed and you can be restored to what you long for, which is community with God and with others. I, one commentator said these wonderful words. He said, don't trouble the teacher anymore is never a right response to our troubles. Maybe today you feel this I'm beyond hope. My shame is too great. I don't even want to think about it. Don't trouble the teacher anymore is not a right response. The same Jesus who is active and got his hands dirty in these lives is the same today. And we want to be a church where that's welcome. We don't expect people to get all their lives in order. You are welcome to be restored to a community of people through the power of Jesus and us ministering that to each other. And all of that is accessed not by performance, but by faith, by falling at Jesus' feet in your heart or in your body and confessing a need for him. That is all that's required. And that leads to the second of the things I want to draw out, and that is this, that God uses desperation and dread to transform us, whether deliverance happens or not. In these stories, deliverance happens, but sometimes it doesn't. But God uses desperation and dread to transform us, whether that happens or not. This week, I've had the opportunity, some of it planned, some of it unplanned, to just spend a lot of time with you, a lot of time with a lot of people, some people here, some people far, just pastoring people and just hearing their stories and holding space for people and talking with people, counseling with people, and have just, it's been a particularly heavy week of just a lot of people and a lot of desperate situations and despairing situations. I've been with some older people who are facing spouses with dementia while they're facing cancer themselves. I've been with people whose lives look great on the outside, but they are full of guilt and anxiety and regret. I've sat with people who are sitting in the ruins of job loss and 
marriages that have ended, conflicts with adult children they don't know how to handle. I even spoke with a student of mine um, and a friend who is on staff at Christ's Covenant Church in Nashville, where a month ago the tragic events happened that for sensitivity reasons I won't talk about, but many of you know what that would be. He was in his office when the events occurred, barely was saved himself, his life was spared, and then was out in the parking lot as he saw all the grievous aftermath. Despair. There's one conversation particularly that I wanted to share with you a little bit, and it's because this person that I has asked me to share it with you, and Chris gave me permission to share this conversation, otherwise I wouldn't. And it's about our brother Andrew Toy. Maybe you know the toys, Andrew and Sarah Beth. They are members of Sojourn, and Andrew has, you know, had things in his life like all of us, and was baptized though here within, I can't remember how, many, how long ago it was, but has come to saving faith. He's had a lot of health problems in his life for a long time. Things have taken a particularly bad turn recently, recent weeks. He's currently in a hospital bed. He might be watching right now with us in Cincinnati facing a major surgery with a lot of complications. And he asked the doctors a few days ago, very straightforwardly, are what are my chances of dying? And the answer was not low. And so we had a long phone conversation and because death is very real to him in a way that we all kind of live in denial. And so we had a meaningful and sweet conversation about Luke 18, one of my favorite texts we'll get to eventually where these two men go to pray. Jesus tells the story, one who's a very religious person who's very confident, and one is a, a person who's aware of his sin and his brokenness. He's a notorious sinner. And they both go to pray, and they, they respond to God very differently. One in confidence, I thank you, I'm not like that other man. And this man, this lowly man over here, all he can do is say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which man went home justified? Which man is the one who's actually honoring God, and it's this broken man. And we just talked about that. We talked about Luke 8. We talked about our story for today. And praise God for God's grace in this and the simplicity of trusting in him. And facing this desperate situation with the real dread of the possibility of his own death or, and, or severe, severe disability awaiting him afterwards, there's a clarity. This is the gift of desperation. This is the gift of dread. There's a clarity about what really matters and what his life counts for. And so you can join me in praying that God would deliver him completely, and God can do that, and his family spare them this pain. But by Andrew's own testimony, what he wanted me to say to you, and he said, give everyone my number if you want, if they want to call me. But he said, God is present with him in this dreaded situation, whether deliverance comes or not. And friends, that's beautiful because God, with God, things are different. Understanding who God is as deliverer and trusting him changes everything. I, I love these verses from Deuteronomy. I'm about to show you where the Israelites are 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years of desperation and fear and loss and pain, 40 years. And here's what Moses says to them, Deuteronomy 8. He says, you should remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you and testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And 
he humbled you and let you hunger and, and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's that clarity that happens in the midst of our despair. And it says, he fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you. And look at this last phrase, to do you good in the end. To do you good in the end. You may know the famous line from Henry David Thoreau, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. He continues, what's called resignation is really just confirmed desperation and unconscious despair is concealed even under what we call the games and amusements of mankind. I don't know where you are today. I, I know many of you are in despair right now. Maybe some of you are in despair that is even turned towards dread. Maybe some of you feel fine, and that's great. And, and, you know, there are seasons of our lives, thankfully, that are not always like that. But sooner or later, every one of us is going to face our limits as being humans, our own mortality, our own lack of control, ultimately. And the message from God here is that the same God who was present to Jairus and his daughter and his family and to this bleeding woman is the same God who has not changed, who is present now for us in Jesus. That truly is the good news. And wherever you find yourself today, or if it's now, it'll be later, when you face despair and dread, there is a hope. There's a hope that God can and will be present with you by faith. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.